Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, it's James here. We recently went past a milestone on the Love Tennis podcast and didn't really get the chance to pay tribute to it. We went past 50 episodes in our lifetime. We wouldn't have done that without you, the listeners, giving us your feedback, being in touch on Twitter and generally making sure we keep George's ego in check. So I want to say thank you. Thank you for everything that you do and for supporting us through all this time. And we promise we won't go away again. Now, where's my ukulele? Welcome back to the Love Tennis Podcast. Thank you for joining us again. We're very happy to have you, as always. Uh, Coming up in the next hour or so, we'll ask whether Rafael Nadal is the best faller over of all time. What Novak Djokovic can do to stop him, maybe trip him up. Uh, Maybe the answer is bagels, I don't know. But we'll talk about the most prolific purveyor of bagels outside of Brick Lane. That is, of course, Igor Shontek. Roger Federer has upgraded his mobile signal. He's got one of Bill Gates' special microchip vaccines, so... He'll be available to speak to everyone for the next, well, for the rest of his life, I suppose. Uh, Andy Murray's in trouble with his groin again. Uh, no, not like that. Sorry, sounded wrong. Um, and Calvin's been on a tour of southern Germany, although I'm told there are no morph suits involved on this occasion. I'm, of course, James Gray of the iNewspaper and iNews.co.uk. I can't do any of this alone and never can. Uh, so I'm joined by the Midlands' finest tennis correspondent, under 30s category, nominated only, uh, George Belshaw. George, how are you? Yes, I'm very good. I've escaped to Birmingham um, for a little 10-day vacation. Absolutely. You know, it, the home of Britain's number one tennis player, of course. So yeah. this is the true heart of British tennis in 2020. Does that make you the, the Birmingham number two? Are you the Brum number two? Probably not. Probably not. I'm trying, um, to, think, I'm trying to think if there's anyone else from Birmingham playing at a high level. At a high level. Uh, Lloyd Glasspool. He's, oh, he's up there, isn't he? Okay. He's so, yeah, I'm, I'm probably not. And and even if that they were the only two I could name, uh, I, I still would be some way behind, I'm afraid. Mm. And you'd also have to be fit, because as we know, injury is <laughs> something of an issue. Um, yeah. But let's not get stuck down into that too early. Uh, the third man in the ring, of course, is uh, the only man who's broken as many racket strings as he has heart strings. Uh, it's the one and only Calvin <laughs> Bethon. Calvin, how are you? Which glamorous corner of the world are you coming to us from today? What a hyped job that was. Um, <laughs> I'm, um, I'm in uh, Greece. Got to Greece okay. yesterday. Lovely. Which part of Greece? Crete. Heraklion in Crete. Oh, very good. Yes. The, uh, the future's regular stop um, in Heraklion, where they seem to have about 30 tournaments a year. Uh, but yes, yeah. we'll be going through all of the big news from the last seven days of tennis and looking forward a little bit to what's coming as well. Uh, occasionally, we've had to scrape the barrel on this podcast for sort of top-level tennis matches to break down. It's certainly not the case this time. Uh, we were treated on Sunday to, I think, one of the greatest tennis rivalries uh, of all time. I don't think that's exaggeration or hyperbole. Uh, Nadal took on Djokovic in Rome. Uh, Nadal winning 7-5, 1-6, 6-3. It wasn't, if I'm frank, always the best match to begin with, certainly in quite tricky conditions, uh, but it, it lit up in the third set, I thought, and there's the usual combinations you'd expect in, in that match. But, uh, George, what, what were your kind of overarching thoughts from, from that particular match-up? Yeah, I actually thought the first set was pretty good. I quite enjoyed that. Um, that was certainly the, 
the closest one. It was a bit of a strange match, though. I mean, like, it felt like Rafa, once he'd broken in the first set, was just going to run away with it. Novak looked really, really dodgy around one all. Of course, he'd played two matches on the Saturday. Looked to me like he was about to take the, oh, I'm fatigued way out, CBA, can't be bothered. Um, and then just all of a sudden, Rafa's level dipped. Novak rushes away, takes the second set, six love. And 6-1. 6-1, excuse me. There was um, no bagel, George. We would have known. The bagels were in the other one, of course. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it was, yeah, and then pretty tight again. It felt like Novak was kind of in the ascendancy and then just a little drop in uh, concentration and Rafa ran away with it. But yeah, I, I, thought, I thought it was a good match. Not not their greatest match by any stretch, but a good a good match for both, I think. I think Novak needed a set off Rafa on clay. I think that was quite important to him at this moment in time. He needed a bit of belief that he could go with him. And in his own mind, he'll be saying, okay, I lost that match, but I played two matches on the Saturday and I'm still pushing this guy pretty close. So I think there's something to take for him and for Rafa, you know, I think he he probably needed another good win as well. You know, he's not necessarily played that well. You know, we'll talk about this in a bit, I'm sure. But his match against Denis Shapovalov in the last 16, he was pretty poor again. And I thought he was going to go out as well as Shapovalov played. Um, so it was good for him to kind of get over these demons. And it seems once again, they're both going to be roughly peaking for a Grand Slam, which is only good news for us. We're hoping for some good tennis in Paris. Yeah, I've been talking about this a, a lot over the last couple of weeks, kind of Rafa, and, and Novak's talked about it more publicly. Rafa, I think, maybe is a little bit more guarded when, when discussing not playing at his best. But Nadal clearly is someone who, who knows how to peak for the big tournaments, um, for whatever reason. He, he knows how to kind of amp up his level uh, as the clay court season goes on. And, you know, it's not a, a mistake that he's won 10 Rome titles. You know, this is a tournament that he's always done very well at. Uh, I guess because the, the conditions are pretty similar to Paris. It's also because it tends to fall closest to the French Open, I think I'm right in saying. So it, it, it's not a mistake that he, he ends up winning these. I've got a very interesting stat that I want to put to you, Calvin, from the, this particular matchup, uh, which comes courtesy um, of Matt Willis and his excellent um, racket newsletter, which is that the points that were fewer than five shots, Nadal won 50 to Djokovic's 36. The points that were five to nine was almost exactly even. And then in the nine plus shot rallies, there were 25 of them and Djokovic won 20 rather than Nadal's five. Now, I don't know whether that statistic surprises you, but it certainly wouldn't always have been like that, would it? Those statistics, there's quite a lot of conjecture about them uh, within tennis data and that kind of thing, where data analysts like to find a pattern in stuff like that. Um, Mm -hmm. But their feeling is the data analysts will tell you that the nine and above shots are irrelevant because in any match they tend to be split 50-50 between the two players. And they tend to be, data analysts tend to be very big on, it's interesting that one is not five, they usually go not four. So it's serve, return, and then the first shot by each player after that. Um, But to be honest, my position is always that every tennis match is different and I don't think that... Analysts like to have a pattern. They like to pool matches and think that something there's trends and that kind of thing. But in my experience, there are no trends. They like to think that they, they go as far as saying that the winner of the naught to four will win tennis matches. But in my experience, that's not the case all the time. It is sometimes. I was just going to say that I think the only stat between these two that I find relevant at all is that I think I'm right in saying since 2017. Novak's not beaten Rafa on clay, and in the same period, Rafa's not beaten Novak on hard courts. I think that that's the there's a big mental block between the two of them on their surfaces. And I think that that's certainly the trend that needs bucking. I can't see Rafa bucking that trend on hard courts anytime soon. Novak is perhaps showing slight signs that he's capable of getting at Rafa on clay, but still a long way to go for him on that. That regard, I, I would I would agree with you. I think my kind of um, it's not often that I necessarily get time to sit down and watch a whole match uninterrupted, um, but I was off on Sunday and didn't have a huge amount to do, so I was able to just sit and just watch it without any like you know without having to tweet or like do other things for work. And it's quite a rare thing to do. And 
the kind of thing that struck me was that it felt like this match was Nadal's to win or lose. You know, when, when Djokovic had his moments of ascendancy, the second set, for example, it felt like it was because Nadal was playing badly. Now, that's not to say Djokovic didn't play well, and there were some astonishing moments. I mean, that's still of him having slid across to the forehand wing and hit the ball down the line, and his knees are bent inwards and his shoulders sort of popping out and his, you know, big follow-through above his head. You know, I saw someone put it next to that famous shot of Medvedev having just hit like a low backhand from the back of the court. And, you know, it's just an absurd position he gets himself into. And he, he hit a couple of shots that genuinely made me just go, Whoa! like out loud on my own in the flat. But it still felt like when Nadal wanted to win that match, he could do so. Or not necessarily wanted, had the level to do so. And for like nine games in the middle, he didn't. And for the rest of the match, I feel like he did, George. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I think Novak's been pretty honest about how he's assessing this matchup on clay at the minute. And, you know, you might say it's mind games and him trying to push Rafa down, but he, he's basically, pre- I can't remember the exact quote now, but it was something about there being like a, a minuscule chance of him actually being able to beat Rafa in Paris uh, this year. You know, that's quite an... I feel like a couple of years ago in 2019, when Novak got off to that amazing start at the start of the year, he felt, I can I can destroy anyone on any surface. There seems to be a little bit more of an acceptance, or perhaps, you know, depending on how deep you want to go into their mind games, he's trying to, like, lure Rafa into a false sense of security. But I think there were encouraging things for Novak from this match. I do. I, I think he obviously won't be going into a Grand Slam match between Rafa where he's well, let's hope not, where he's had to play two matches the day before. I don't think he'll have to have gone through that kind of emotional rollercoaster. And one of those matches against Sissipas was, you know, seriously high quality, tough physically. And Sonego, again, tough mentally, where he was about to win that second set, win it in straight sets. And Sonego suddenly rushed through, beat it, you know, having to play an extra set, having already played a match on the same day was really not ideal. So there wasn't that much in the tank, I don't think, for Novak. Um, relatively speaking, and he still gave Rafa a pretty good match. And I think, you know, considering how we've, we've been pretty critical of Djokovic the last couple of months since the Australian Open, you know, he's not really looked bothered. He's not really looked that up for it. I think that changed this week. And I think he's, again, proving to himself, yes, I am good enough just to click my fingers, beat the next gen or the guy who's been the guy to beat in the next gen for the last few months in Sissipas beat another guy on the same day and then push the best guy on clay when he's not you know, going to have his full energy levels. I think he'll take a lot from this week. And he probably is, again, probably the guy you're most likely saying can beat Rafa, even though he got absolutely hammered by him last year in the French Open final. Calvin, Djokovic leads this, this match-up 29-28. It's what was why I love this rivalry so much. It's so even over the, the, their career. 57 meetings. And there's only one match between them. Do, do you think that Djokovic will remain ahead in that matchup as time goes on because he can't touch Nadal on clay? How do you see this kind of rivalry? I don't want to use the word peter out, but that's what I mean. I think it's an interesting matchup, and I think the same thing with um, with both Federer's Federer, sorry, with Djokovic's head-to-head with Federer and, and Nadal is that he's above both of them slightly in Nadal's case, but he lost most of the early ones and then comes on strong because he was a bit later to the party than they were. So I still think it's a little bit skewed and that Djokovic, in, in terms of head-to-head over, I guess over the last 10 or 12 years, is, is comfortably ahead of both of them. And as always with Nadal's head-to-head against Federer as well, it's kind of a bit skewed because he, he plays both of them more on clay than anything else because... He tends to play all the clay tournaments and he doesn't play some of the hard tournaments. The other thing I just wanted to kind of add about this, just kind of following on about the, the peaking idea, I mean, I just think it's going to be quite interesting. I think Team is the person I'm most interested to see if he can peak at the French Open. You know, that I think when we're looking at these guys now, what really sets them apart from Sissipas, who's been in amazing form all year outside of the slams, um, and, and in the slams, to be fair, he played very well in Australia, you know, can can they just flick it on again and often often on again? And you know, team last year he, he's won the U.S. Open. He's coming into the French, where he's traditionally been very strong. Didn't quite turn up. Lost to Schwartzman. 
you know, he's not had this big run on clay that he normally does. Can he then just flick that switch like a Novak can? And I think that's just going to be the interesting thing to watch because aside from team, I still don't see Sissipas beating either of them over five sets on clay at the minute. And out beyond that, I don't see anyone else doing it either. So it could be Rafa and Novak show again. I think just following on from that, George, as well, that um, what I've noticed over the last few matches that such a Sissipas, Zverev, team have played against both Djokovic and Nadal is that these guys when they play their 9 out of 10 10 out of 10 level that is better than Djokovic and Nadal's 10 out of 10 9 out of 10 level the problem is that Djokovic and Nadal's 8 out of 10 is better than their 8 out of 10 and they don't so I think what they're doing and I think we saw it with Tsitsipas against Djokovic the other day and Zverev to be fair against Nadal is that they went right okay Let's see how long you can keep playing that because I know you're going to drop to eight out of ten and I'll beat you there. And as we saw with with Zverev in Madrid, conditions aside, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, he just managed to keep his nine out of ten all the way through it. And I think yeah. the same with City Pass in the semis of the um, was it the semis the quarters of the Aussie Open. Yeah, I, I think that's such a good point. I mean, I, when I'm watching City Pass now at his best against the best guys, I'm thinking this guy's untouchable at the minute. You know, the yeah. physicality he's bringing to the court, the power, the top level. He over he can go through Djokovic, no problem. Like, Novak's top level, okay, maybe a little bit different in Australia, but in most other events, I'm not really seeing Novak's top level and thinking, wow, he's going to blow people off the court. But you're right, it's those moments where Sissipas can't quite recreate it. Novak's so good at just playing those big moments well and that kind of happened against Rafa a little bit you know Rafa was well in the ascendancy going into the early parts of that second set and Novak was just ready to pounce at that one moment he dipped but Rafa being the mental beast he is he just kind of checked out of that set brushed it off comes back in the third and goes again and that's where these two I just think are so much better than everyone else you know they can just really play their moments so well so yeah I think that's a really big point but that that speaks that's good for the younger guys as well you know that they are reaching these levels but it's about finding that lower base level that maybe they're not quite doing as well well it's interesting you mentioned the big moments because one of the notes that i made from that match was probably was the big moment of the match which i think uh either three all or three two um in the uh in the third set which i think i'm right in saying or might even be in the first set big pardon when Rafa fell over, is basically what I'm talking about. Yeah, first set, um, yeah. And it, so it was the first set. And what was significant about it was, was partly the falling over, and we'll come on to that because I've got uh, interested to, to hear Calvin's view on it, but it, it was a troublesome point for Djokovic, and his serve, as it was for most of the match, although it got better as time went on, was in real trouble. I think he only hit 60% of first serves in, in the first set. And he went to serve and volley, and it didn't pay off. And then... Nadal runs down this incredible ball and wins the point and then trips over the line and hits the deck and, you know, he's up and he's roaring and he's covered in clay and it's just a brilliant moment of TV as much as anything else. Um, do you have any concerns, George, about the Djokovic serve? Because it does look vulnerable, especially in poor conditions. They say he's more vulnerable to, to windy conditions for whatever reason. I think, to be fair to him on that point, I thought it was a pretty good play. I thought it was a decent serve, pretty sharp volley um it was super from rafa um i I worry more for the serve on clay yeah absolutely i mean i think if you watch him in australia he was kind of i think people were comparing was it tfo who compared him to pete sampras just he did john isner john isner Isner as well i mean i think he was mostly joking and he didn't really know what day it was because he was knackered but (laughs) yeah he he his, his serving in australia i think was for him as good as it's ever been yeah, I, I, there was one other tournament, I think, a couple of years ago in Shanghai, where I think that was one of the only tournaments he wasn't broken throughout the entire Masters event. Um, right. Because, you know, Novak, if you think about him as a player, you think about the return being way stronger than the serve. And the serve's definitely, definitely improved as years gone by. But he does have these weeks where he can just really pick spots and, you know, pick people off perfectly. But it, it's a lot harder him to do that on clay I don't think he's going to get as many free points I actually was a little bit more concerned funnily enough about his returning on clay I don't think that actually is as good as on other surfaces which seems a bit weird like you kind of think he would get a bit more time on the return but I think what makes him such a good returner on hard is the kind of 
because the ball's going a bit quicker, the anticipation, it takes that time away from the opponent. Whereas I think sometimes on his return on clay, uh, I've got no stats to back this up, by the way. This is just kind of naked eye vision. Um, it just looks to me like he's not putting as much pressure on that server. And I just wonder if it's because that ball's coming up a little bit more on the serve, taking a little bit more time in general, giving that opponent a little bit more time to then deal with the serve. But that, that might be a complete lie. But that's just how it looks to me when I'm comparing that matchup from clay to hard. Calvin, complete lie? <laughs> no, I think on the serve, it's an interesting one because his serve has most definitely got better. But if we look at, in inverted commas, the big three, or even you could put Murray in there, I guess, you'd probably say he's got the least effective first serve of that because purely Gus Nadal's is left-handed. I think maybe if Nadal's was right-handed at the same sort of thing, it, it, you'd have him on a par with that. But Murray's definitely got a bigger first serve than Djokovic has. Federer's got the best serve out of any of them. Um, but I think what he does is he's very, what he's very good at, and I said this, say this many times, he's the best big match player of all time in any sport. He's very good at finding his spots. He's very precise under pressure. And I don't think you're getting free points from him on that. But I think when it's not in those moments, when it's overall over the course of a match on a clay court, it's probably, I don't want to say it's a weakness, but it's probably as close to a weakness as you're going to get in that kind of matchup. Mm, exactly. George, just to back up your Shanghai Masters point, it was the um, 2018 Shanghai Masters. We didn't drop a set. He was only pushed to tiebreak once by Kevin Anderson, uh, and he only faced four break points in the entire tournament, all of which he saved, uh, which is a pretty... To be fair, I can't actually see a good returner. I'll tell you who he beat. Shardy, Chechenato, Anderson, Zverev, and Chorich. If you're going to serve well for a week, like <laughs> that's going to be the week, isn't it? But uh, yeah, nevertheless, I, I'm fascinated by the Djokovic serve because it's had, you know, three such obvious kind of different phases, both in terms of how effective it is, but also quite obvious technical stuff that, you know, I'm, I'm no expert on serve mechanics, but even I can see that he hits the ball in a different way on serve throughout his career and obviously he's had this, this elbow problem and a little shoulder problem as well so I suppose that, that makes sense to a, to a certain extent um, I don't think any of us will disagree that Nadal remains the favourite for the uh, for the French Open and, and now he's had a proper test as you mentioned in your notes George this is probably well this is the best Masters tournament I think we've had all year in terms of quality both semi-finals were absolutely brilliant you know the Djokovic City Basket won given even more kind of it was a quarter-final but given even more kind of, uh, you know, gravitas by being stretched over two days. And my mum texted me about that match and said, these rallies, they're mostly just winners that they keep getting back. Which kind of <laughs> summed it up, I thought. Um, but I did just want to briefly touch, and Calvin, you have had much more experience of clay courts all over the world, because Nadal fell over a line twice. Against Shapovalov, he was sliding across the service line, he tripped and fell. And then against Djokovic, he was sliding towards the outside, you know, the doubles line, and he slipped and fell. And basically, as far as I can tell, the problem is that they're secured by nails. I don't know what other lines are secured by, but it seems like it's a problem in Rome. It's, it's changed quite a lot in that respect on clay courts over the years. And the, the, the lines used to be raised above the clay, if mm. that makes sense. Like if you, but now, most of the clay courts that you find, the lines are embedded in the clay, so they're not actually higher than the surface. Yeah. I don't know whether Rome's, I assume that Rome's would be still higher because you wouldn't trip over it if it was embedded into it. So this was always a problem with the checking the marks. I'm going to get into real tennis nerdy stuff here. Uh, <laughs> with check, checking the marks of, uh, of a line call. Of, of, so if a ball hits the line. So what the argument always is that if, if the line's raised and the ball clips the back, very back edge of the line, if that line was embedded into the court, it wouldn't actually clip the clip the line, so is that in or out? If that makes sense. Um, I see. But um, but that have, my dad my dad always used to bang on about that, and I'd, for years I had no idea what he was on about because it's probably relevant about 0.3 percent of the time. But if a ball <laughs> does clip the very back edge of it, his argument would be that the line would actually be about two millimeters lower. Uh, on a normal court, so it wouldn't actually clip it. So it was, it is actually out. But on a clay court, it would get called in. So yeah, I, I think getting... that's it. I, I assume that on in Rome, the lines are still raised because um, that would be the only reason why you trip over it. 
<laughs> yes, exactly. Um, I saw a lot of praise on Twitter for people saying, oh, my goodness, Rafa, he didn't injure himself when he fell over. What a genius. <laughs> um, you know, how could he possibly have the grace and presence of mind to fall over and not hurt himself? For the record, I've fallen over many times in my life. <laughs> never really hurt myself that seriously. Um, it, it just like, it was the second running as Djokovic when he like hits the winner. It's a brilliant shot. And he like chucks the racket to avoid falling on it, I assume. And and he was getting all this praise on Twitter. I mean, t- someone tell me I'm wrong. If I'm wrong, tell me I'm wrong. But like he just fell over and didn't get hurt. It's not that impressive. I'm sure that I'm sure that certain people we know will find an example of Djokovic falling even better and even right. more bravely and getting even less getting even less injured than Nadal did. Um, um, one thing I will say that's beyond uh, beyond reproach is that Nadal was extremely unhappy about it, um, and that after I mean he he complained to the umpire at the time in and I don't speak Spanish but I do speak a few Spanish swear words and I understood them. Um, which, you know, is not how he would wish to treat an umpire, I'm sure. And he uh, he also complained afterwards. I think he said, oh, they're killing us with these. So I, I've no doubt that the Roman authorities, having been able to get fans in, which means they did make a bit of money this time, uh, might invest in something a little bit different that, that doesn't trip up Rafa. Because let's face it, if you're Rafa Nadal and you've got a French Open to win, and, you know, you go to Rome and run the risk of falling over in that way. I don't think it's unreasonable to get annoyed about it. So um, I'm kind of on his side there. Let's move on, because uh, not only was the men's tournament uh, of fine quality in Rome, there was an excellent lineup uh, for the women's, ma- uh, ma- it's not, they didn't call it a Masters event, but the equivalent event. Um, it was a shame, really, that the final ended the way it did. Iga Swiatek up against Karolina Pliskova. Uh, and frankly, it was all over in more than 15 minutes shorter than the first set of the men's final. 41 minutes. Uh, it was the shortest completed women's final since 2009. It was only the fourth double bagel, uh, which means six love, six love to the uninitiated uh, in a women's final since 2000. It's a bad matchup for Pliskova, George, obviously. Uh, I don't think anyone predicted it going quite that badly. Was this just like one of those freak days that was Skontek really, 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 really good. It's funny you were saying earlier about um, watching matches where you're not having to do something else. I, mm. I sort of, I, I was doing some other stuff on Sunday as well and kind of like managing some desk stuff. <clears throat> and I, I watched the majority of the first set and I flicked away for five, ten minutes just to focus on other stuff thinking there's no way this ends six love, six level goes that quickly, you know. Every time a player loses six love, they're normally quite good at just, you know, recessing, going again, particularly in a bloody final. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I checked again. I was like, oh, my word. <laughs> She's four love down. <laughs> and it's about to be over. I mean, it, it was astonishing. I mean, I, I, you know, it was one of those days. Fiante was amazing. I mean, that that's the first thing that needs saying. You know, her level was superb. She didn't put a foot, lo- put, foot, put a foot wrong. Um and, you know, it was quite funny in the post-match interview with the uh, on-court stuff, you know, the the commentator or the broadcaster who was announcing it, he just goes, well, that wasn't a great match, was it? To Sviantec. He's like, well, that's not her fault. She played a fantastic match. She, she, she's won six love, six love. That's an unfair accusation to her. If I win six love, six love, I'm praising myself to the high heavens. Um Mostly the game through two sets without getting injured. Exactly. That is the big problem, really. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But yeah, you know, I I thought she was great. Pliskova was pants, really. Um, Didn't really try and change anything up. And she just didn't seem to me... I mean, it's it's a hard moment going on court for, you know, a post-match speech when you've just been tanked six love six love there were a few boos when it finished oh dear and she has to give a bit of a speech and she basically said yeah it just was a day where i was rubbish and she was brilliant and this can happen but she didn't seem that bothered um i wonder if there was something a bit more going on before the day or something because it, it, it was pretty inexplicable from a player who's been former world number one still a top 10 player um and had a had a pretty good week before that and she likes rome so strange one but spiontech uh, up and running again, superb. Let's not forget that Carolina Pliskova has Sasha Bajin in tow. Um, which, you know, <laughs> we we can only speculate what what that may affect. I mean, she did get to the final, you know, and she she beat a few decent players on the way, so it wasn't as though it was coming. But yeah, 
as you say, George, I almost don't want to talk about Pliskova too much because it feels like there almost must have been something other going on and we may find out about it a little bit down the line. So that's kind of my hope because you don't want to see anyone lose that badly and certainly not play that badly. But yes, as you say, rightly heaping praise on, on Iga Shontek. She's a defending French Open champion. Uh, she's obviously coming in with that for the first time. Not very long ago that she did win that French Open title with the kind of vagaries of the modern calendar. Uh, Calvin, I know you're someone who saw Shontek some time ago and, and picked her out as someone who could do something very, very special. I'm going to put an interesting odds to you. I found a special odds market on total career slams <coughs> for Iga Shontek. And to win two more slams in her career, she is 25 to 1. Which for a 19-year-old who currently... Exa- exactly, George, that is the... I am pulling a serious face of puzzlement and want <laughs> you to send send me that immediately. That, that's yeah, free, uh, well, free money, isn't it? Well, you think so, isn't it, Calvin? At least two more slams. I mean, she's she's a, she's into the top ten for the first time, by the way, because of the rankings she should have been in ages ago. But, you know, two more is a slam dunk, isn't it? If it was four more, that would still be a great bet. <laughs> um, she Yeah, she's winning two more without a doubt, so... Yeah. If any of our listeners want to take advantage of that, take my yeah. advice. And, and yeah, where do we on. find that, James? Uh, I'm, I'm not going to say it without the uh, the bookie giving me a lot of money to do it. Uh, okay, please do bet enough. responsibly and don't bet any more than you can afford. That's the sensible thing to do with that. You can uh, take it okay, afterwards. Li- yeah, they listen, to... <laughs> they're probably going to reduce it now. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, but Calvin, on a serious note, you know she's coming in as defending champion. She's played pretty well on clay so far. Uh, I think she's only lost to Ash Barty this year on clay. Um, and Barty, of course, pulled out of the tournament um, during her match against Coco Goff with a, an elbow problem. Uh, Halep has had surgery, I believe, on a calf injury or at least some sort of intervention, which presumably means she is she out of the French Open, George? You're, you're, you're kind of finger on the pulse of this. It's, it's not confirmed. I, I, I kind of feel like she's going to try and play heavily strapped up. but Right. I, I don't know. I mean, she's not she's not pulled out, uh, but right. you, you know, unless she's Novak Djokovic, I, I'd be very surprised if she's coming through a tear and going to win a Grand Slam. Yeah, um, within two weeks. But in that, with with that at your uh, at your fingertips, Calvin, is Schwantek comfortably your French Open favourite this year? Uh, I don't know if I'd say comfortably, but I'd make her the favourite. Yeah, um, I think Barty still will be in the in the mix. Um, the, it's interesting with the women's game at the minute because it, it's, it's a really exciting time. There's, there's real quality. There's a few stars emerging. A couple of concerns I've got is the injury that, that some of them are picking up or most of them are picking up at some stage. And something I'd still like to see, we still haven't seen a great match in a final between any of these girls. And I think they were still sort of hunting for that. If you take like Osaka, Svontek, um, Goff, um, Andrescu, Mogarut, so these players, we still yet to see a big match, great match um, that we always tended to go when men's tennis took another step up with Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, that Murray, that kind of thing. That every final that those guys had seemed like a classic. Whereas with the women at the minute, and it's very early days, don't get me wrong, yeah. it seems to be one of them just collapses when it gets to the final. Yeah, I think. Th- in fairness, the only one they've played against each other that's been a finals probably Spiontek's last year. Is that right? When yeah, they played yeah. French Open, and that, that was pretty one-sided. But I mean, it, to be honest, there's a bit of a miracle Kenin made that on clay, wasn't there? Really? Yeah. Um, I wouldn't. But yeah, it is true. You know, these big matches are what's going to define this era. I'd also just add on the Barty injury. That felt to me more like really serious game management for her. You know, it didn't seem like it was a massive issue. She was a session. She spoke to a physical. Yeah, spoke to a physio, damp, wet conditions, clearly not wanting to make anything worse. One second chat off. I, wow. I'm far less worried for her French Open than I am Halep's. You know, I, I don't think that problem's so serious. I think it's just something they're monitoring. Um, I'd still expect... That, that felt like a precautionary withdrawal rather than Halep being like, oh, crap, I can't run. Yeah, um, I, saw, I so, saw Halep posting something on social media saying she'd had, like, an intervention, uh, you know, a, a, I can't remember if she said surgery, but I'm sort of second guessing myself now because if she's had surgery, she is surely out of the French Open. Um, but given that she's not, maybe she hasn't. 
Um, so I, I don't know. Here we go. Um, hi, guys. She said on Twitter uh, three days ago, after an MRI in Rome, I can confirm for a small tear high up the left calf. I'll fly home today and begin recovery in the pool and gym, staying positive and will do everything I can to speed up my return. So there you go. She's not had surgery, but it is a tear. And you think that, you know, two weeks out, that's going to be pretty hard, pretty tall order to get herself back into Nick. Um, I, I think that might be delaying the inevitable. But the sen- but and also with, with Wimbledon not that far away, you know, if she has surgery now, that's probably two slams to, that she misses. Yeah, I mean, she's defending champion at Wimbledon as well. I, it's interesting. I, I, I do actually have a feeling she'll play the French Open, to be honest. Um, I, I, I don't know why. That's not based on anything particularly. I can just imagine her really strapping that calf and going for it. But I, I think it'll only get worse during the tournament. Yeah. And, you, you know, I, I don't see her, particularly given the quality of Sviontek and Barty on the surface at the minute. You know, if this was a couple of years ago, I'd still actually back Hallett to have a pretty good chance of winning it. But because of how well those guys are playing and the increased depth that we keep talking about in the women's game, I think it's going to be really, really tough for her to, to be fit and ready with a, a tear in her calf um, mm-hmm. to win that. So, I, yeah, she, she's out of my top five favourites now, which I'm sure we'll come on to in a bit. It's inter- I think it's interesting as well with Halep, even fully fit. I wonder whether she's almost been market-corrected now. And, and is it looking a bit like when you look at the other players, I think the game might have moved on from what she can do. It seems like all the other girls, they move well, they're consistent, they've got the skills that she has, and they also hit bigger as well. Um, and I'd be surprised, actually, if Halep wins another slam. Because you think there's that much depth? Yeah, I think it's just almost like it happens in tennis sometimes. It's like... Kind of, I guess, when Federer came, when Federer came in and he, and he just market corrected the game, and there was just no one who could live with him. And then a few years later, Nadal came, and the players who'd been before, like such as Hewitt, Hewitt had been dominating for for a couple of years, and then Federer came along, and Hewitt kind of looked a bit bit anodyne and didn't have much to his game. And now you look at it now, and he and you kind of think, well, Hewitt was only world number one because it's pretty weak era in the men's game, whereas mm. at the time. It looks pretty strong, and I think Halep sort of. She's been, I think, the best player in the women's game for a couple of years, but or for maybe a bit more than that. But I think the game might have moved on from the way that she plays. Mm. It's, it's interesting. I mean, you know, she's still putting in some decent slam performances. She beat Sviontek in Australia, didn't she, this year in a yeah, three? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she was hammered by her in Rome last year, but that's actually a pretty kind of big result to bounce back on. Um, yeah. But yeah, I kind of, I do kind of agree to be honest. I mean, it's interesting because Hallett, probably the best match I've ever seen her play was that Wimbledon final against Serena. I mean, the yeah. the level she showed there on not her favourite surface, you know, it was seriously big time. She was so quick everywhere. She was hitting so big. It just felt like the perfect day. But if that was Serena five years earlier, does that, are the conditions there for that to happen? Probably not, you would say. Um <laughs> So, you know, in terms of peaking at the right moment, perhaps. But, yeah, I mean, look, I, I like Halep. I think she's good on – she's still very good on clay. And if she was fully fit, she'd be in my top three favourites, no question, um, on that surface. But I'd be surprised if we're talking about her winning another hard court slam for sure. Um, and the grass – I don't know. It's still tough, but I don't see her coming close on a hard court slam now, really. Mm. Um, I wanted to mention, because I wrote something about her today, partly, but also because it is significant that Coco Goff had a, an excellent run in yeah. Rome. She beat uh, Maria Sakari, Arena uh, Sabalenka. She obviously sort of beat Barty, although Barty retired while I set up and recount. Um, but, you know, she only took Shontek to, to, to knock her out in the semi-final. So that's significant. Um, I, I think she's probably worth watching out for at Roland Garros, George, unless you disagree. No, I was going to say, I think this little period's been quite interesting for her. I'd say there's been like a lot less noise for this last six months than there was at any other stage. I know, obviously, we're talking about someone who's so young in their career, but, you know, before every draw, people are looking for Goff, what's she going to do? That feels to me like that's eased off a little bit. Um, And obviously, that's kind of a good thing to allow her to progress without that spotlight. But, you know, I I think I'm right in saying she's going to be. Oh, is she going to be seated? She's either going to be seated or 
just outside the ceiling. She'll definitely be seeded for Wimbledon. Mm. Um, you know, there's, this is now a good time for her to kind of get through a few easier matches early on. You know, we've seen her having some really tough early round matches um, at Grand Slams that hopefully will start to change for her a little bit. Um, yeah, and, and she's good on clay. I mean, she's won, I think I'm right to say she won the French Open Juniors. Yes, um, she beat um, Katie McAnally. Who she played yeah. So she, you know, she knows her way around a clay court. Um, did she beat Sabalenka this week? Is, is that right? If I made that yes, up. she did beat. That was the, that was probably the the best win I think beating Sabalenka, uh, who, who's been in stunning form all year on hard court yeah. and fair uh, on clay. Um, she she plays in Palmer this week. Uh, she's got a she's had a really busy schedule actually. I was reading. She she kind of deliberately has pretty much played every week since uh, since the beginning of Miami. I mean, she lost in the first round of Miami, but then. She's played Charleston, and then she had another week, and then she played Madrid, and she played Rome, and she's now playing this this extra 250 they've added in uh, in Parma, the Emilia Romana, I think they're calling it. Uh, she is up against Kai Kanepi, the famously difficult early round opponent, although probably less on clay. Um, yeah. But Serena Williams is also playing. Uh, she was in action today against Lisa Pigato, uh, an Italian qualifier ranked 572 in the world. Uh, who went break up in the first set, to be fair, and then uh, lost in straight sets. Uh, Serena is not in great nick. Uh, she lost to Nadia Podoroska last week, who I know is a French Open semi-finalist, but I'm kind of discounting that to a certain extent because of the weirdness of the year. Um, Calvin, I'm guessing we, we think that she's a, Serena is a first-week distraction at the French Open rather than a genuine threat to any sort of title. Yeah, I've said many times I don't think she'll win another slam. Um it, the one thing interesting about Serena, though, and, and Martin Navratilova said it the other day on the coverage I was watching, and it's right, but I'd not thought about it this way, that she still actually is the biggest hitter in female tennis. Still hits the ball bigger than anyone else. Um, but Which is sort of strange thing, strange thought when you think about it, but um, I, I just don't... Again, I think the... I, I, no, I don't think the game's moved on because Serena play Serena Williams playing... 2007 Serena Williams tennis if you transported her into this this era now she'd still be by far the best player and yeah. it's a strong era um, so I don't think the game's moved on but I think I do think Serena's past her best I, I don't think she's really going to uh, trouble the, the well she, she keeps making finals that's the thing but she can't win finals um, and I do think her nerves have gone a bit I don't think she can play the finals even if she gets there I, I, on the clay, I just I can't see it either. I mean, like the movement particularly is so highlighted on that surface for her. I mean, she gets away with it on the grass because she's so good on that surface. Um, and, you know, the other players aren't quite at that level. But when you watch her playing in a soccer on hard courts at slams, you know, she doesn't look quite there because of how good a soccer is there. But on clay, that number, you know, Podoroska, decent player, fine, but she's not someone we think can seriously win the French Open. Um, you know, I, I think I think there's a lot of work to do. Um, yeah, I, I totally agree. I don't see her winning another slam, but Clay, I mean, I, I'd probably go as far as to say I'd be surprised if she made the second week, to be honest. I think if she makes the quarterfinals, that's a good result. I was going to say that there's been a kind of a growing trend um, when it comes to Serena on Clay. I, I'm slightly surprised, to be honest, that she's playing. Um, yeah, I know she's obviously chasing that record, but you know, especially with it being so tight onto Wimbledon because of the week later, I'm a little bit surprised that she hasn't gone sack it off and and just you know concentrate on other things. But but maybe you know, I remember Roger Federer quitting clay court tennis for good and then saying no no, no I'm going to come back because actually ends up being really rusty coming into the grass court season. So maybe there's an element of that as well. Um, I mentioned Roger; he's back in Geneva this week. I think he's playing. Uh, we should know his opponent by now, but I've forgotten to check who won out of Jordan Thompson and Pablo Andujar. Uh, I don't think it really matters. Ah, Pablo no. Andujar uh, won, which isn't a surprise, I suppose, given he's a decent baseball player. So he will take on uh, Roger in Geneva, probably uh, by the time you've already listened to this podcast. So we won't focus on that too much, but he has got a vaccine. Told he had the Pfizer vaccine. Who cares? Um, <laughs> he chose that he should be world number 800 rather than world number 8 at the moment, uh, he's right uh, the rankings are a joke, Alexander Zverev agrees um, but 
I kind of want to talk a bit more about Andy Murray uh, because I feel like he's gone under the radar a little bit this week. Um, just because there's been a lot of other news around. He's had another setback, we understand. Um, he's given up on the clay court season where he was hoping to kind of prove himself to the FFT in Lyon or Geneva uh, and kind of earn a wild card because he wasn't going to make main draw and I'm sure he didn't want to play qualifying. Uh, but he's decided to give up on that and, and focus on the grass. It's still, we understand this kind of mystery groin problem, George. Is that is that too kind of um, nebulous or is that kind of sum it up? Yeah, um, it's one of those where they've said the scans hasn't shown anything particularly. I mean, look, they're probably not going to detail to us what the problem is anyway yeah. um, or how serious it is. But, you know, it, it was started in Miami um, or, you know, he woke up and had this problem and he played some doubles last week in Rome after some good practices with Novak and Diego Schwartzman. Um and it, it's just gone again. And, you know, I, I said, you know, earlier this season, once well before Miami, that I was kind of thinking, OK, if Andy can get a load of matches in this period on the clay, his ranking will rise easily if he stays fit and he'll put himself in a good position to do well at Wimbledon. And, you know, he's trying to reframe this now as, OK, I'm pulling out of the clay to focus on the grass. Um, and there's some merit to that as well don't get me wrong because he wasn't going to get a wild card for main draw French Open without playing anywhere else so it's a bit pointless going through qualifying he may as well just turn his focus to the grass but I think he's lacking the matches he needs to seriously be anywhere close to being ready to win not win Wimbledon I mean that, that's probably a pipe dream anyway but you know what I mean like in, in terms of him being out there ready to be seriously competitive at Wimbledon I mean it just seems I don't know it all feels a little bit flat and depressing for Andy now. Um, mm. I don't want to write an obituary for his career or anything, but I'm, I'm starting to lose a lot of the positivity I was kind of feeling for him at the start of this year when things were over. And funnily enough, I was talking to my physio the other week when I was going to sort out my latest problem, and we were talking a little bit about Murray, and he was he was kind of saying that his theory on this groin is that this is just kind of a shooting pain that's coming from the hip. And if they're not getting anything from the scans, that it's just the bot because that's so linked, that pain. That, and funny, when I first, you know, I was boring you with my lat injury, I thought I had a tricep injury because mm. they're linked and the pain was shooting through my tricep. And he was saying kind of similarly to that, when you have hip problems, you can get shooting pains through the groin. And he's actually worried it's a kind of wider, this is all conjecture, of course, but it was quite interesting to hear someone in that field kind of talking about what all this kind yeah. of linkage between the groin and hip. So I, I, I'm a little bit worried from that perspective, just having had that conversation mm. as well. I've had that before as well, when I've gone to the physio with a knee injury and it turns out to have been a hamstring injury. Um, yeah. You know, you do, it does happen. Uh, Calvin, you're usually the optimist of the piece. So can you give us uh, a <laughs> up from, from George's pessimism? You know, Andy Murray's going to win Wimbledon and this will all be behind us. I mean, I think he's he's definitely putting a hundred percent in. I saw him last week at at the NTC, and he's you can tell he's desperate to get back. Um, mm. Again, we keep saying it; he's going into the unknown. And my concern now wouldn't even be the injury; it's more he's thirty four now, and these sort of long spells without any tennis being played. At what stage do we? You know, it's only because of three particular players that we're talking about who can go beyond the age of, at this level, go beyond the age of sort of 31, 32. And like, let's say if he doesn't, how long can we continue like this where he's not completely written out, but it's these niggling injuries keep writing him off because he, he's not been able to play a schedule now. This Well, since COVID restarted, he's not been able to play tournaments really. And I'd like to think we're not a year from now going, Andy Murray's had to pull out another tournament because of another niggle. Because he's not going to be doing this at 36. Like, let's not no. kid ourselves. But I mean, one thing I did think the other day, I watched him play doubles last week, and I know that the feeling was that he wouldn't fancy being a full-time doubles player. It would be too much for him to be turning up at tournaments and seeing the guys who he's regularly competing with playing singles, and he'd just be there for doubles. But I do wonder whether he's quite big on records, I think. Um, I wonder whether he'd quite fancy being the first player in a a long while to be having been number one at singles and doubles 
because the the doubles wouldn't affect his movement too much. And we saw the other day he was marvellous when he played um, in the match. I didn't see the match they'd lost, but the match he won, he was clearly the the quality player on the court. There was mm. no question about it. And they were against and they was playing against two good doubles players. Yeah. Um, he's probably one of the best volleyers around. He is the best returner for, for a few years, along with Djokovic. And I think he could definitely do it, even in this physical state that he's in now. Um, and I'd be surprised if, I don't know, I don't know him that well to say it, but if I was him, I'd quite fancy doing that. I think the last one was McEnroe, and that must be 35, 40 years ago, who was, mm. who was singles and doubles number one. And it's just, uh, before that one to cut across you, George, you know, the only two guys who've had this hip surgery and gone back to top-level tennis went back to top-level doubles in Leighton Hewitt and one of the Bryan brothers, I can't remember which one. But they're the, really the only ones who did it. So, um, Sorry, George, you were going to say. Yeah, I, was just, I mean, I was just going to say in terms of his frustration, I mean, you must, he must look back on this Australian Open with such frustration. Again, you know, given how many setbacks he's having physically that was the one time he was really talking about i'm physically great here and then to just have that bloody covid test to kind of rule him out i mean the guy hasn't caught a break to be fair and you know there was quite a defeatist interview with him in miami wasn't there straight afterwards where he was talking about you know i can't deal with another rehab like this it's all just so frustrating It'll, it'll be interesting you know, in the grass court season where we'll be getting a lot more access to him and he'll be desperate to play and desperate to do well. It'd be really interesting to kind of get a, a gauge of where he is and how much hope there is left. Um, but yeah, look, I, I agree with Calvin. I mean, he's a superb doubles player and you only need to look at the title he won at Queens with Feliciano Lopez. I mean, you know, he barely played at that stage at all and he came in and beat some really high-level players that week. Um, so there's certainly no question he can do that um i still feel he'll be trying to push his singles career for at least another year but you know if if something goes wrong and upsets this grass court season um which seems very possible at the minute given the setbacks he's having um i I, you know i'm starting to become a bit defeatist on it as well i think it, it could be that to be honest i think another thing as well that you have to take into account is even aside from the physical element of it, his fitness and that kind of thing, he's not been playing great tennis in the tournaments that he's come back and played. And we don't know how much that is affected by the, the, the physical element, but I suspect not much. I don't think he'd play if he wasn't physically fit. And how, you know, he's, he's not been great in the tournaments he's played. As He's had spells where he's been good. But you do wonder, like, if he, if, even if he's fully fit and he gets his hip back to the most it can be, is his tennis level still good enough to do what he wants to do on a singles court? And that's not me saying it's not. I still think that's a question that needs answering, though. I tell you, for me, just what I was thinking about and just looking the the stats of it, I kind of take it all back. And, you know, we will have this conversation again when Andy Murray retires, whether that's this year, next year, or in three years. But I still look back at 2016 and just think, did you need to do that to yourself? You know, he played uh, 87 matches in 2016 and he added things to the schedule because he thought he could pinch year-end number one, which, of course, he did. But, you know, he played the Olympics. He played all the Davis Cup ties that England, that Britain had that year. He played in Vienna to try and pick up a couple of extra points. And he wasn't just playing tournaments. He was getting to the finals. And so he was playing more and more matches. And I still, I remember at the time, I don't want to be an Arthur Timer about it, I remember at the time thinking and possibly writing somewhere, just be careful, Andy, because you might be taking years off the other end of your career here in pursuit of some goal. And, you know, sure enough, seven months later, he limped off the court against Sam Querrey. And, you know, this all started then. And I can't help but think if someone had been in his ear just saying, I think we've got to take a longer view on this. And I know you can't tell Andy Murray anything. But I just can't help but think. I, th- I think it's a good point, and but also I think even beyond that, though he's he's known for he's pushed his body to the limit throughout his career. There was there's some suggestions that maybe those those fitness camps that he used to do in in Miami in in the long term weren't the best idea, and that the the 400 meter sprints that he used to do. But it's one of those, isn't it? They 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 made him the player he was, but. 
are they also the reason why he's in the state that he is now physically yeah. and you know it's again it's normal for a person to be like that it's only that we have basically three unicorns in Djokovic, <laughs> Nadal and Federer everyone else well Rinka struggle with it look at yeah. Del Potro Del Potro's body's all over the shop and you know back end of Sampras's career he couldn't play um, I guess he went on a bit longer, but Becker couldn't maintain it at that age. No, no one, no one else has ever maintained this level past the age when Murray got injured. So Murray would have been, if you'd have said, if you'd have said five years ago or ten years ago that Murray's going to end up with three slams and his body will start breaking down when he's thirty or thirty-one, that would be well, yeah, of course he does. He's been a professional tennis player. He's trained hard. That's the age when your body starts to break down. It's only because we have three that haven't that we think it's mm. something out of the ordinary. Yeah, and I was just going to add to that, you know, it's very easy to sit here and say, oh, Murray doing all these training camps. I mean, it's only become a reality that you can play at this level while his career has been going on. I mean, to have that sort of foresight was impossible because, the, the, the you know, the goalposts have shifted while his career has been going on. So it's, a bit, it's always a bit silly just to be like, oh, he killed himself, breaking himself down on these fitness camps. You know, who... It is impossible to say, oh, he's lost the last five years of a career he never thought was possible when he started his career. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's always easy to kind of sit in hindsight and say these things were problems. But as as Calvin said, you know, one of the things that made Murray great was his ability to push his body to the limit, push his mind to the limit and stay in there against three of the best guys of all time. And you know, the fact that probably has killed him in the end in terms of a very uh, metaphorical sense. He's still very much alive as a human. Um, I, you know, it's a shame. I think my my major concern with it, going for, not concern, is why I've just got serious doubts about whether he does get back there, is that we, we were away last week and Luke and I, the player I'm, I'm with, we watched a couple of clips of him playing Djokovic in, I can't remember, the last time they played in the Aussie Open final. Um, and the movement of both players was absolutely phenomenal. Like Murray's movement and his chasing and his ball striking was, was phenomenal. And I can't see any way that he gets back to doing that. And if he can't do that, I don't see what how he's going to win at that level. Um, so, yeah, I just can't. I've got, yeah, I've got doubts. The 2015 final, it was 2016 the last time they played, but the 2015 final is the one where he won the second set tiebreak. And I remember watching it. And waking my mate up, who was hungover, and being like, "You've got to watch this because <laughs> yeah. Andy Murray's about to win the Australian Open, and he probably lost twelve of the next fifteen games." <laughs> um, but, but anyway, neither here nor there. Uh, you mentioned that you've been away um, with Luke, and I know you're still you're in Greece with him now. Uh, but a pretty successful week in southern Germany, a pretty interesting one as well, Calvin. As far as I can tell. Yeah, it was uh, it was decent. Luke won. He qualified. Won three qualifying matches. Won a main draw match. Lost a decent match. Second round main draw, and he won the doubles. Um, obviously, doubles is not the main focus, but Luke is a really good doubles player. He's been a bit unlucky since COVID started, in that he's played. I think since we re- since we returned from COVID last autumn, he's played eleven doubles tournaments, and he's had to play with ten different partners uh, <laughs> for one reason or another. Within that, those eleven tournaments, I think three of his partners have got injured and had to withdraw from the tournament. Um, and even today, at this one, we've got to Greece. Um, he has he was going to play with a British lad, and then had to change that last week because he got injured. He can't play doubles this week. And then he agreed to play with a Ukrainian guy who he played with a couple of weeks ago. And then this morning we were informed that the Ukrainian guy has not been able to get into Greece. Um, and so now he's, <laughs> oh, playing with a Spanish, now he's playing with a Spanish lad uh, who's another new partner. So this week will be 12 tournaments with 11 new partners. <laughs> I, was, I was just going to say, aside from the competitive tennis, I mean, that, there was a great picture you put up this week. I think you said it was in Dusseldorf, a court in the forest. Um, I mean, oh, it was in Troisdorf. Troisdorf looked um, fantastic. Yeah, it was one of the most scenic tennis clubs I've ever seen. And the, you know, the tennis culture in Germany is phenomenal. Um, one of the days we fell on a national holiday, Men's Day, German Men's Day, uh, whatever oh that means. Um, <laughs> but when we got to the club at 10.30, everyone was already on the beers. 
Um, and <laughs> hopefully not the players. The, uh, no, but they just love the talk. They love the tennis in Germany. So the weather was pretty bad last week, but there were about there was always about fifty people there watching. And the the club director, I was talking to him, and he said that they'd normally expect about two to three hundred people watching every day of the tournament. Um, but yeah, it was a lovely scenic court. It was genuinely looked like it had been built into the middle of a forest. Um, made the conditions quite tough because it always felt like a bit damp. Um, the courts were really, really slow. But uh, really enjoyed the week, though. It was really good. Um, I just wanted to ask you a little question. You mentioned Luke, you know, doubles isn't the main focus. But when, when you're out on a trip with him and he's out of the singles, you know, do, do you still take the doubles as seriously? Or is it a bit like, go on then, mate, go and do your, your little doubles thing and I'll, you know, I'll, go, I'll get the beers? No, I think the thing with Luke, he's definitely... definitely equally focused on the doubles once or while he's still in singles he sees it as a, i think two two parallel pathways um and that kind of thing and it's been a bit unfortunate because his doubles ranking has dropped about 140 places in the last year but that's been to basic he had a regular british partner he played with and they got into wimbledon main draw in 2019 but evan who was his partner has been injured since then um, mm. And just a multitude of reasons. So the lad he played with this week and won, they planned to play together for three weeks in Greece last year. And he, his partner broke his foot in the second round. Um, yeah. So that would have been, and he's not, this was the first one he's won since he came back from COVID. I think he's made three finals in that time, but again, different partners. I think he lost six of those matches on tie break. So it was nice to get back on the winning. It's the 13th doubles, um, title is won so but I think it's I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say singles or doubles is more a priority it's just Luke sees them both as, as separate entities I think mm. and you're always hustling at that level as well so any any prize money you can pick up anywhere is, uh, is well the prize money the prize money last week was ridiculous because German the tax in Germany is 35% so I think <laughs> I think he got I think Luke got for, for, for winning for, for winning three qualifying matches one main draw match so he played five singles matches and four doubles matches. I think he got 650 quid. And with the tax, it took it down to uh, 420 or something like that for, for, for a week. Euros, that was not pounds. So um, that's where he got for the week. And yeah, you think you, it, it's a bit of a kick in the teeth because the prize money is already pretty paltry. And then they, they whip off 35% tax um, on top of that. And then I think he has to declare that as tax in Britain as well. So. <laughs> well, I mean, if, if he's not been declaring it, you've dubbed him in now. So. Um, <laughs> very good. Well, always interesting to hear insights from the ITF tour and something we always excited to tell people about on a level of tennis they probably don't know a huge amount about. Um, I think we, we can wrap up unless there's any other business. George, you've usually got something. I was just going to say, we'd said today we were going to name our top five WTA French Open contenders and I've actually written them down. It's the first time I've prepped for something we've said we're going to do. Heaven forbid you should do some uh, preparation, but uh, you go for it, George. Who are your top five favourites for the French Open? Incidentally, this mini-segment exists because George refuses to name one favourite, but he will name five. (laughs) Um, So, Halep normally would be in there, that was my caveat, and if she's fit, I'd have her in as number five. Okay. But, Sviantek, Barty, Muguruza, Andrescu, and Sabalenka are my five at the minute. Okay, very good. You've also picked, I think, pre-season, and, or maybe Calvin picked her, Andrescu. I think I, I think I had a French Open, a which tour. I'm not feeling great about given she's missed the majority of the crazy season with COVID. Yeah, but, um, but I still uh, think she's capable of just turning up and winning a big tournament, um, which is why she, she creeps into my five. Uh, Calvin, did did you do similar amounts of research with, to George? Uh, I did not know. Uh, okay. I didn't write them down. Um, they're mainly the same, although I think Goff is in the mix as well. Uh, I don't think she'll win it, but I expect her to have a decent run. Uh, but yeah, that's the uh, it's the same place. Sabalenka, I think. Uh, Sabalenka, Andrescu, Barty, um, and Felix Fontek. Yeah. Mm. Uh, I, I threw Maria Sakari in there because I've just been really impressed. Like, I mean, it's kind of draw dependent, obviously, but I just think that she's got such grit at the moment and has like played good tennis at lots of different stages of the year. You know, first first couple of first month and a half of the year, she was pretty much the form player along with Sabalenka, who's also in there for me, and Barty and Schwante. And then I think I think Coco Goff again draw dependent. 
Um, but she kind of looks pretty fearless and pretty untroubled. You mentioned, George, that she's been out of the, the firing line. You know, I tried to get an interview with her this week and told she, told she wasn't doing any media uh, before Wimbledon. Um, so if anyone else bags an interview with her before Wimbledon, I shall be incredibly offended. Uh, but maybe that's, that's what happens at Roger Federer's management agency, that you get hidden away until they think, think you can handle it. Um, I'm sure those top fives will look ridiculous in a couple of weeks' time, but we shall see. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, if you've been joining us live on Locker Room or whether you're listening back on the podcast, as always, please do leave us a rating or a review and give us a follow on Twitter. Um, we just like it when we can talk to you more often. Other than that, stay safe and try to enjoy yourself when you can. Sports Social Podcast Network.